So we're going to jump in. A couple things you guys need to know. My voice is going, so hang with me. Be glad you came to the first service. Um, we're going to get ready to receive our offering. If you are new with us, welcome. Thrilled that you guys are here, and uh, don't feel pressured to give. We just love that you're present with us. Several things coming up. First of all, you have a card on your seat somewhere close that's advertising our Halloween movie night coming up. That's next Saturday night at Stockard Youth Center. We're going to be showing Coco, and uh, there are going to be a whole bunch of kids, but adults love the movie too. So just come, be a part of it, fellowship. Let's just enjoy the night together. Feel free to come in costume if you want. Bring some candy. We need some donations because we want to sugar the kids up and uh, get, get all that going. The next day, Sunday, after our second service, we're going to have our Ethiopia interest meeting. So many of you know we have a partnership with Ethiopia. We uh, work with an organization called Children's Hope Chest, and we take a trip there every summer. So this is a long process of building a team, uh, raising the support, getting the trip ready to go. So if you think you might even want to possibly, question mark, be interested in the trip, that's the meeting to be at. We're going to answer as many questions as we can, um, make you feel safer, because you're going to Africa. Isn't that awesome? Some of you know you're supposed to go already, and you're fighting it. So come be a part of that. And then the last thing, uh, and I was told to push this really hard. This is the world's greatest women's retreat, okay? November 2nd through the 4th. I'm telling you, every women's retreat I've been to, this is the best. <laughs> So, right, ladies? It's incredible. So November 2nd through the 4th, we want you guys to come be a part of that. I know there are some spots left. Um, you need to get signed up like yesterday. So let them know. Fill out a connection card. If you don't know who they are, that's totally okay. Fill out a connection card. We'll get you plugged in, and uh, we'll get you there. I think they're going to Deep Creek. Is that correct? Is that Timberline? Timberline. I was wrong. They went to Deep Creek at one point. Yeah, a long time ago. Um, so, yeah, be, be a part of that. Let's pray for our offering, and then we're going to jump in today. Father, thank you, God, for this time, for this place, for these friends, for these believers. And God, I pray that you will walk with us today. For those that are just checking this out, let it be just a safe space today to explore their faith. Um, God, we want to explore what you want us to be as a church. And we ask that you would meet us in this place and in this space. God, receive this offering. Use it for your glory. God, help us to be faithful as a church. Just continue to provide the ways that we need. Help us to be a generous people. Help us to be disciplined and cheerful givers, as your word says. Father, it's in your name we pray, and everybody said, amen. As we start, I want to set the tone with another wonky church video. Enjoy this. We've made some good progress today. I just want to remind everyone that talking about your bad church experiences is the first step to healing. So does anyone else have any experiences they'd like to share? Yeah, I've got one. You guys would not believe what I went through. That was my grandfather's watch. <laughs> so no kidding, I was in a church in Kenya and they passed the offering at one point and it got to the front and the pastor received it and he looks at both the plates and he goes, not enough, keep playing and he passed it again. They, they just kept doing it. It was like three or four times, no joke, that's how they do it. So you think I talk about money too much? 
Hang in there. We're gonna jump in. Um, two other things I forgot to mention. Uh, I, I think I said this early in service. Tomorrow night at 7.30 p.m., we're gonna be leading a prayer service of lament and hope at Wesleyan Chapel. Uh, Wesleyan students, please spread the word. We'd love to see you. We're just gonna make it available space for the staff, the faculty, the students to be there. And church, I'd love for you to be there just to be a support, to be praying, to be encouraging. Uh, come be a part of that. And then the table in two weeks from now, our Wednesday night, kind of uh, every other week gathering, we're gonna do a night of worship. The band's gonna be leading us just simply in a worship night. No sermon, just music. Amen? You can be excited about that. Uh, are you guys awake today? I know it's cold. We're going to jump in to our second week of Wonky. We have been in this series, and uh, we're talking about how do you survive the, 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 the life of following Jesus when it's so easy to hate the church. And we defined last week the word wonky simply means this, off-center, crooked, askew, or not functioning properly, which often defines the church. God had intent and plans for the church, but often the church messes that up because we are perfect and we refuse to allow perfect people. So if you're perfect, you better find somewhere else to go because you're just going to mess our whole vibe up. So when we started this series, I put out a post on social media asking friends to share how they had experienced hurt, pain, embarrassment, or just the overall craziness that can happen in churches. And I have to tell you, I was blown away by the amount of responses, by the comical things, by the painful things, by the heartbreaking things. But more than the nature of the responses, I was surprised by how quickly the responses came in. It was incredible. Almost from the time that I put the post out, there was just constant feedback coming up. People felt the pain of churches, but they felt the pain strongly, and I sensed needed somewhere to get it out. It was almost like a sense of catharsis for these folks uh, to purge themselves of these stories. And I, I can only imagine the stories of my friends that weren't shared publicly. If you're new here today, I'm glad you're here, and I would imagine some of you are here and you have your own stories about the wonky nature of church, about the pain that churches can cause. I would imagine you've been frustrated, you've been hurt, and I bet we could open up a mic and we could share some of the pain and we'd all get it. And I have to tell you, as I've watched this process, as I've listened and I've seen the posts coming back and the stories coming in and people saying, like, you won't believe what happened to me, here's what I thought about. I thought that it kind of reminded me of how I've seen people purge themselves of relationships after after a difficult breakup. You know what I mean by that? Like, I, I don't know if you've seen this commercial. Brittany, go ahead and clip that, click that clip. I want you to see, I, do you remember the satellite TV commercial where she's just chucking stuff out the window that's his and then she finds a new satellite and it's great? Like, this is kind of what it reminded me of. Maybe you've been through that. Like, maybe you were there with someone for a while and it ended badly and maybe you didn't know what to do with all the emotions at that point, the anger, the frustration, the hurt, the sadness, but you took action Anybody ever torn pictures apart? Anybody ever ripped up clothes or burned stuff or thrown it out somewhere? We, maybe you held their dog hostage, you demanded ransom, like whatever it was, it was this purging to get the emotions out. But here's the thing. When you watch breakup moments like that, I've always kind of cringed when someone else's stuff gets destroyed because you know what? That guitar didn't do anything to you. And it's kind of like, what is happening? And I get it. We get hurt. We get mad. We get disgusted by the pain we feel. And we need somewhere or something to take it out on. But oftentimes, we're taking it out on the wrong things because we can't take it out on the right thing. We can't rip a person in half. Some of you have tried, but we can't do that. And we're here in this week two. And I want you to hear this. When it comes to the pain that you felt from bad church experiences, I think that much of it comes because, now listen, don't miss this, we have invested our emotions in a relationship that was never meant to be the central relationship. So, so let, me, let me explain this to you. I think, 
all of us as human beings have relational webs, relational connections, and depending on the nature of the relationship, it determines how strong those webs are. So let me, let me show you kind of how this works. Go ahead to the next slide. You got you, and then maybe you're married or you have a spouse, and that's like your strongest relational web. That should be, aren't they cute? That should be, I worked hard on this. You need to engage. This, this is like their strongest relational web, and then you have your kids, and they're a little too old to have kids, but we'll call it Abraham and Sarah, and and then they have kids, and that's another strong relationship. And then you go to, like, your extended family, and that maybe is a little bit less strong, but still strong. And then you've got, like, your community relationships. And that's maybe, like, a little bit lesser, less strong. Now, here's what happens. While this may be how things should be in our lives, a lot of times we put strength into the wrong thing. So here's what I know about some of you. Your relationship with your dog is way stronger than any of these other relationships. Amen? So, Come on. Some of you need to own up to this, all right? Others of you, maybe you, you have a stronger relationship with your truck than your spouse. With me? Don't look at your husband. Look at me. Okay. Now, here's the thing. This is kind of how... It happens, and these sports teams maybe are more important than your kids. Your truck gets treated better. Your dog gets treated better. These are out-of-order relationships start to create problems. Now, let me translate this for you to how this works in our faith. The way that we understand Scripture, the way that we understand a relationship with Jesus, you have you, go ahead, and, and, and then you have this relationship with Jesus. That's what should be central. And because of your relationship with Jesus, you should have a relationship with the church, that's kind of the way that God intended this. Because you love Jesus, you love the church. That's the nature of this. Here's what I know happens in wonky church, okay? Instead, you have a relationship because you came to a church, you had an experience in the church, you were loved by the church, you kind of had this powerful thing, and because of the church, now you have a relationship with Jesus, and what happens is that when the church breaks down in your life, in your perspective, at whatever cost, if, if the pastor said something that you didn't like or they kicked you off the worship team because you were smoking cigarettes on stage, whatever it was, I, had a, I have a story. I'm not gonna, I, Come on. There was a criminal defense lawyer who got people off death row and in between worship services at our church of about 2,000, he would go outside and puff on cigarettes. I was like, the guy needs it. Like He's had a, got a hard job. He'd come back in and kick butt. Best keyboard player I've ever played with. People were like, he should not be. I'm like, but he's a great keyboard player. So whatever happens at your church, when the church breaks down, your relationship with Jesus is somewhat severed. Does this make sense? We put too much stock in something that was never meant to be central. So today, as we talk about the wonky nature of the church and how to survive this world of church, I want to ask you to have a conversation with me today about something that you've all done. You've probably all been through, maybe in high school, maybe middle school, maybe college, and it's called a DTR conversation. You know what I'm talking about? Defining the relationship. Today, I want to ask you to define your relationship with Jesus. Does it look like the first slide where Jesus is central and you love the church because of Jesus? Or does it look like the second relationship where it's the church and then you try to love Jesus in spite of those people in the church? Because often I think we're refusing or missing out on the things that Jesus wants in our lives because we have this relationship out of order. Here's the thing I want you to get today, the one thing I want you to hold on to. To survive the church, 
Your relationship with Jesus must be stronger than your relationship with the church. To survive the world of church, to survive and love the community of faith that God has called you to love, you must build a stronger relationship with Jesus than you have with your church. Now, I want to tell you a story today from the scriptures that I think illustrates this correct, defined relationship that we're all called to. It's a powerful story of healing and persecution in the early church, and it's fascinating to me how it all plays out. But I want to frame this story by asking you, because a lot of times we come and we hear the stories of scripture and we go, this is what this means for me. Oh, I get it. And that's appropriate. And you can do that today. But I also want to ask you to frame this to say, let's be a we today. Can we all be a we? Can we cry we, we, we all the way home today? <laughs> because I want this story to relate to us as a church. If you're not kind of a committed partner of new community or you're just checking us out, that's fine. You can judge us, okay? I'm giving you permission to judge us today and to say, that's not you yet, but you guys sound like you're working on it, or that's never going to be you all. You can judge us, or you can say, yeah, that does sound like you. So I want us to ask the questions today, are we actually living this out? What I'm going to do is I'm going to read this story, and I'm going to stop along the way to give you some descriptions of the properly defined relationship where the church has Jesus at the center. The body of believers have the relationship with Jesus in its proper order. So let's jump in. Acts 4 is where we're going to start. If you have a Bible, you can go there. If you have it on your phone, we'll have it on the screen as well. Here's what happens. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So let me give you some context to this. In the last chapter of Acts, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were on their way to the Jewish temple. Remember, Jesus has ascended to heaven. They have a faith that Jesus has raised from the dead, but they still consider themselves Jewish. So they still go to the temple to practice their faith until they know what God wants them to do. So they're on their way to the temple, and they are approached by a crippled beggar asking them for money. Now, this happened just outside the temple. Immediately after the healing, they heal this man. They look at him, and they say, we don't have any money <laughs> because we're pastors, we don't have any money, but we're gonna heal you in the name of Jesus. So they heal this man, and it says that the man held on to Peter and John as they stood in one of the courts of the temple. Now understand, the temple had certain levels, like the, the, the righteous Jewish men could sit up front. The like Jewish men who were a little less righteous could sit in the next court. The women had to be in the back. The pagans had to be in the back. That's kind of the way their culture understood it. So they're in a court where only the women were allowed to worship. I'm sorry, that's just how it was. I'm not endorsing it, okay? And as they're walking with this man who's been healed, the crowd takes notice. They say, that's the beggar that was out there. He's crippled. He's been there for years. And they start to run towards Peter and John and find out what happened. And we are told that the temple guards and the priests, now exactly what you think, this was the religious police in the temple, okay? That's kind of fun, isn't it? I wish we had police here sometimes. It would be fun. They came towards Peter and John, and we're told they're greatly disturbed because of what John and Peter are teaching, which is Jesus will raise the dead. They're disturbed by that teaching. So check this out because it's wonky. A man who has been crippled for years, a man who has suffered for years, who has had no money because he can't work for himself. He is healed in public in the name of Jesus, and the ones who perform the healing are telling others this story and telling them good news, and the church leaders, the religious leaders, try to shut it down. Everybody say wonky. 
Come on, it's fun. Say the word. Let's start here. If we're defining the relationship with Jesus first before the church, here's the first indicator you need to know of the faith community that puts Jesus first. Jesus is proclaimed. That's the first description of a church that puts Jesus first and the church second. I know that sounds like Sunday school answer where Jesus is always right, right? But don't brush past this because it's the reality. In many places where the relationship with the church supersedes the relationship with Jesus, life in Jesus is not proclaimed. Where the church is more important than Jesus, where people have put the church on a pedestal, life and resurrection in Jesus is not proclaimed. I have been in churches where so many other things are proclaimed. I was in a church one time where a pastor gave a sermon about one of the parables of Jesus that clearly, like you didn't have to be a Bible scholar. You read this and you went, oh, that's about Jesus coming back from the dead. And the pastor turned it into a sermon about working hard in life. And I was like, come on, like you're missing the point. It's not proclaiming Jesus. So how do you survive the church? First, I want to tell you this. Find a place where Jesus is being proclaimed. Find a place that is actually proclaiming the hope of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Some of you are going, well, what else would be proclaimed in a church? Well, what if they put more emphasis on good works? Let's just be a good charitable cause in our community. What if they put more emphasis on kind of social gospel or activism and let's just be committed to activism. Let's just be so engaged actively in, in, in the political causes and whatever, but they miss Jesus. Can I just tell you there's no social justice without Jesus? And by the way, there's no just Jesus without social justice. That's the gospel. What if it's just feel-good theology, right? You know what I'm talking about here? You, you that can't sleep late at night and you're flipping through and you hit that Christian station and you just can't take your eyes off of the train wreck that's happening in front of you? Like, that's something besides Jesus. Legalism supersedes Jesus often in churches. See, many of you have been in churches where you couldn't get to Jesus because you were so busy feeling guilty about all the rules. Amen? We understand that. There's so many other things. See, I would say this. The life of Jesus is always the death of religion. When you have life in Jesus, when you understand resurrection, when you understand grace, it always kills religious legalism. Do you know why the temple guard was called in at this moment? Because they were proclaiming that a man who had died had come back to life and that Jesus had done that so that all the dying people who were hopeless in that temple could be brought back to life as well. This is super uncomfortable for religious people. See, for the Jewish people, their moral legalism kept a clear system. If I sin in this way, right, if I walk through the camp on the wrong day and I spill something, remember the rules in like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, then I go to the temple and I kill two doves and God's happy with me again. Listen, I could be really good at legalism. I wish I believed it because I think I'd like to know, well, if I do this, then I fix this. When you start saying that there's grace, grace is super unfair. Have you ever recognized that? Parents, you ever had that conversation with your kids? You don't want me to be fair. If I was fair, you'd be dead. Like, that's kind of the conversation. See, grace messes legalistic religion up. So to be part of the church where the relationship with Jesus is first priority, you need to ask this. Is the resurrection of Jesus being proclaimed regularly? If you don't hear that, listen, if you're part of this church, if you don't hear that, get out. Find a community that's proclaiming the life of Jesus because otherwise the church is central and Jesus is not. Stop making church about your needs or about your rules. Make it about Jesus' resurrection. So here's what happens. Verse 3. 
The temple guards, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. So here's the next part, and you're not going to like it, okay? I'm just going to tell you this. It's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good, but it has always been an indicator of those faith communities that have a relationship with Jesus at the core of their web. Here's the second indicator of the right relationship. These communities are suffering for Jesus, These communities are suffering for Jesus. They're being persecuted in the name of Jesus. Now, we're talking about reasons why you hate the church, and and I'm inviting you to a life of suffering, not good marketing, right? Hey, you hate the church? Come suffer with Jesus in a right church. That'll be great. But it's true. The church that suffers tend to be, tends to be the strongest. I read this article this week. It was fascinating because it was debated. The, 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 the writers were debating this persecution, real persecution, not like you can't get your coffee, oh, hard life. Real persecution was being debated, and they were saying, does this actually help the church or not? And the author being interviewed said he wasn't convinced. He said, it, it seems that there's actually a tension. At times, the church has been in its best when it functions under threat. In fact, I would say to you that every strong movement, movement that's ever really changed anything substantially has functioned under persecution. Think about our country and how frustrating the political climate continues to be today. We were at our base, best in the face of fighting for freedom from Britain. Think about civil rights. The power of that movement was in its willingness to suffer. The power of the civil rights movement fighting for equality is in the nonviolent resistance. The the peacefulness says that you can force us to suffer, but we will rise up stronger. Do you know where the church across the globe, now listen, is growing most influentially? It's in the places where believers are suffering. You know, we have held up the United States as this bastion of Christian nation for so long. The church is in decline here. That's why I care about church planning, because the population grows and the churches are dying. But when you look at the global sphere of the church, it's growing in places where the church is suffering. See, think about China. For decades, the Chinese government has persecuted religious minorities, including Christians. In 2013, their president took office, and the nation intensified this persecution. So after being told, now listen, one church was told to put video cameras in their church for security reasons. Can you imagine that here? One pastor refused and immediately faced consequences. He was kicked out of his building. He was fined. Other pastors have been put into jail. At other times, persecution intensifies with things such as abduction, rape, detainment in prison, loss of limbs, even beheadings. Churches have actually shown up to worship and found their crosses burned and destroyed and communist banners hung in their place. I want you to understand, real persecution causes the church to expand and build in this incredible way. When I'm talking about suffering, I'm not talking about your non-Christian friend looking at you funny because you mentioned Jesus. That's not persecution. It's uncomfortable. I get that. But it's not persecution. I'm not talking about politicians who want to unhinge your religious freedoms. I'm talking about real-life persecution that makes us stronger in Christ. Now, here's the other side of this. When this author was interviewed, he said that persecution can also kill the church. In Iraq, for instance, the church has most likely moved from 5% of its population to about 0.5% in the last 50 years. They are predicting the church will actually die out in Iraq, that it will be a completely non-Christian nation. That's heartbreaking. 
when he was asked about the difference in these things, does persecution help us or hurt us? He said this, the difference is how far the church establishes itself among the mass of people and doesn't just become the church of a particular segment, a class, or ethnic group. So this is striking to me. I want you to understand this because in many ways, it seems to describe what I hear the loudest evangelical church voices, and if you pay much attention, they're quite wonky in themselves, saying today. It seems to be this American rallying cry that the freedom of Christians is being taken away and it promotes this pervasive sense of fear. And it strikes me because I'm not sure that we were ever supposed to be as Christians the mass majority of a society holding all the influence and power and authority. Do you see that in Jesus? Do you see Jesus ever rallying like, we've got to take over the government. We've got to fight the war. In fact, he says, serve the ones that want to break you down. Fall in love with the ones that hurt you. Lower yourself to become Greater. See, if our churches, listen, don't miss this. If our churches only represent our ideology, our preference, our ethnicity, our demographic, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. This author I read about said that when Christianity is at its weakest in one area, amazing new opportunities open elsewhere. So when it dies in the Middle East back in 1915, it also erupts like a fire in Africa. The church is growing right now in the global south. Hispanic communities all over. I, I got invited this week to go in uh, February and March to speak to like 100 Latino pastors. I got to learn Spanish. I can't wait because that church is exploding. They're just growing like fire. Friends, most of us have not once experienced persecution for our faith, but I believe we should because I think it would reorient us toward a faith in Jesus like we've never known. Look at the next verse. But many who heard the message Believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now, think about this. Jesus is proclaimed. Suffering is happening. Here's the third thing that indicates the right relationship with Jesus, that non-Christians are actually coming to Christ. Everybody go, oh my gosh, that'd be amazing. Think about this, that non-Christians are actually turning to Christ. See, here's the question. In the church that you find yourself, are people who don't know Jesus actually coming to know Jesus? This is why church planning matters to me. When we started New Community, the common question that I heard and still at times here is why do we need another church in this town? Why don't you just build a car lot? Why do we need that? They were nice, they were polite, but that's what they were asking. And it's a great question. And if you look at it as just another church, I don't have a good answer. But let me tell you why I think it matters. In 2009, the statistics showed 15% of the population of West Virginia reported attending on church on Sundays. That means 85% of your friends are not in a church, not hearing about Jesus, not being invited to hear about Jesus. See, in church plans, 60 to 80% of membership comes from new conversions. That's incredible. That's incredible because it's not the Christians who get mad at one pastor or one church and move to another, that it's actually new conversions. Here's what I know, and I don't wanna say this critically, but I wanna point out the wonkiness of churches. We believe in Jesus, but many churches today are not calling people to faith in Jesus. We're not calling them to a place where they cross the line of faith and trust them with all that they are. And I'm throwing statistics at you, but listen, only 52% of Christians shared their faith with someone of a different belief system in the past year. And understand this, 80% of Christ followers accepted Christ before the age of 18. If you don't care about youth ministry in this church, you had better care about it. 80% of people who come to Christ do so before they're 18 years old. We got six of them this weekend, amen? We're excited about that. 
We're passionate about that. The fact is most of us know non-Christians and most of us are not sharing our faith with non-Christians. Maybe you don't know how. Maybe you're afraid they're gonna react poorly. Maybe you just don't care enough. But if you're not praying for, if you're not talking to, if you're not investing in and inviting your non-Christian friends to a place where they can hear and receive the hope of Jesus, but you still have a commitment to the church, then your relationship with the church is more central than your relationship with Jesus. Because the gospel's always been about going to people who don't know Christ. Verse five. The next day, the rulers. Are you guys with me? Amen? We awake? All right, the next day, because I'm preaching today and you're, you seem sleepy. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? See, here we see another indicator immediately of this rightly defined relationship. Peter and John are brought to question simply because of the power and the healing. These religious leaders want to know, how did you pull this off? How did this guy get healed? See, in Acts 3, when this healing occurs, he asks them, this crippled beggar asks them, give me money, and they look at him and they say, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. This is beautiful. This is a beggar looking for resources and the apostles offering him rescue. We don't need your resources. We need you to offer rescue. It shows us the indicator of this church that power and healing are displayed. In a church that has Jesus at the centerpiece of their relationship, power and healing become of utmost importance. You know one way I know God is doing good things at New Community? Because so many of you are sharing with me your stories of healing. So many of you are walking out of darkness, whether it's emotional, spiritual, physical, whatever it is, you're finding places, you're making decisions to deal with pain, to get out of your past, to move away from brokenness. So many of you are in counseling, and that's a great thing because you're pursuing healing and it's happening. And I wanna encourage some of you because I know you're still fighting against this. Many of you are hoping for resources just like this beggar. Maybe the church can help me. Maybe the church can make me feel good. Maybe the church can give me something I need. You're hoping God will give you a friend in this church. You're hoping for circumstances to get easier. You're looking for a quick fix to your marriage or to safeguard your kids by showing up on Sundays. But the problem with that is this. While those may all be good and necessary things, they aren't the main thing. They're not the main thing because here's the truth about Jesus' power in your life. Listen, healing doesn't come from brushing up against Jesus. It comes from encountering him. You don't get to brush up against Jesus on Sunday mornings and find healing in your life. You have to pursue and encounter Jesus. I want what you have. I preached this sermon a few years ago. Some of you may remember it. Jesus, many of you are treating Jesus like a friend with benefits. Can we say awkward? You want to show up and get what you can from Jesus with no commitment to pursuing him. And I believe Jesus is interested in the deep work of discipleship, of meditation and prayer, of study and energy poured into pursuing him and not just what he can do for you. See, the question is, do we see this in our church? Are we pursuing God's power among us? Are we willing to go to the hard places that take us toward healing? I'm guessing that the churches you felt wonky in were unwilling to face the hard stuff. I'm guessing that they didn't like messy I'm guessing that they all dressed alike, that, that if you dressed out of sorts, you maybe didn't fit in. I hear those stories, and I know that people are ignored because they don't fit in in the right way. And the faith communities that today are having years of sexual abuse confronted and called out because the leadership has never been willing to have hard conversations and truly pursue healing. For us to see the power and the healing of Jesus as regular parts of our life together, it would mean we have to regularly pursue Jesus. 
I got to move. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers. They said, well, how did you do this? Here's what he says. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and we're being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. I love this moment. I love Peter's boldness, and what we're told is he's filled with the Holy Spirit as he faces down his accusers. I love it because it isn't me. <laughs> I wouldn't have done that. I would have been like, I don't want to go back to jail. Just I don't know how I did it. It was pretty cool, though, wasn't it? Maybe we can learn together. Maybe we can do a Bible study. I think if I was standing in front, I would have chickened out. But Peter rises up. He calls these people out for their hypocrisy, for the ridiculous nature of being questioned for doing good. He tells them exactly where the power came from in Jesus Christ. But he also goes on to confront injustice that these men are practicing. He tells them they are guilty of crucifying Jesus. And now they're missing the point of seeing the beauty in what Jesus wants to do to heal others. It's here that I believe Peter gives us this last indicator of the church with a right relationship with Jesus first. Now, I'm gonna give you this phrase, and you're all gonna look at me like I'm, I got three heads, but I want you to understand, I'm gonna break it down. This is the indicator of a church that has Jesus first, a prophetically countercultural imagination. You understand? No, okay, let me spell this out. I got all seminary lingo there, but let me spell it out. This phrase comes from a brilliant biblical scholar named Walter Brueggemann, and it probably deserves a whole sermon or sermon series on its own, but let me tell you what I mean by the idea of a prophetic imagination. We tend to think of the biblical prophets as like fortune tellers, right? They told the future, and they understood what was gonna happen, and there was some of that. But more often, the prophets were the ones who confronted the injustice in the culture. They were the ones who stepped up to the broader empire, the broader political culture, the broader social economic culture, and said, what you're doing the way you're living life, the religious culture, the way you're worshiping this God is wrong. See, the prophet would say, I'm calling you out because it's not what Jesus wants. It's not what God desires. Brueggemann says it this way. The prophet engages in futuring fantasy. The prophet does not ask if the vision can be implemented for questions of implementation are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. The imagination must come before the implementation. Our culture, now listen, this is our world. Our culture is competent to implement almost anything and to imagine almost nothing. Thus, every totalitarian regime is frightened of the artist, of the one who can imagine. It's the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing, now check this out, futures alternative to the single one the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. The task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. I know this is heady. Right? I know this is like, what? Hang with me. I hope you grab the heart of it. Brueggemann calls us to do what Peter does in this story. Peter looks at his accusers who are questioning his actions, and he responds with imagination that confronts the falseness of their entire system of thinking. He delegitimizes their very question. He says, you're asking me why I would heal someone who's crippled. This is wrong. The whole question doesn't make sense. You're missing the whole point of life. To their religious legalism, Peter says, God has always been more concerned with the good of humans. Why haven't you? 
He says, anything that stands in the way of the good of a human being made in God's image, image is injustice in the kingdom of God. See, this speaks to us today perhaps more than any other indicator I've given you of the church who has a right relationship with Jesus. Because we live, listen, we live in a political, an economic, a social, a religious culture where imagination is being lost. We live in a culture where everybody wants to follow the right answer, the right implementation, and we need imagination because the answers we've been given are not working. Do you notice that? Do you notice we're getting more angry at each other, more frustrated with each other, more divided from each other? We need a prophetic imagination that says, we're missing the whole point. You're telling me we're gonna argue politically over racial righteousness? God's always been about the good of people. Let's be for the good of people. You're gonna argue with me about how we should treat women? You're missing the point. We need to have a prophetic countercultural imagination. Stop getting sucked in to thinking that your church has to stand. Some of you are so confused with where I stand politically that you're just heads ready to explode. Stop getting concerned with where your church stands and put Jesus at the center so that you have a prophetic countercultural imagination. We don't need more social media opinions or shares of the article that best shares your position. What we need is this countercultural imagination that best says, there's got to be a better way. I need you to actually log off and invite someone over to your house who doesn't agree with you and sit down with food because it's super hard to hate someone when you're eating good tacos or barbecue with them. Amen? That's the prophetic countercultural imagination we need. We need activists who prophesy better ways to live. We need marriages that never stop fighting for good and loving the lost. We need grandparents who, now listen, grandparents, put your hands up in the room. I'm gonna preach at you for two minutes. I know I'm going along today. Don't miss this. We need grandparents who don't retire but actually retread. You gotta retread because you have more capacity to love, to pour into, to mentor, to transform lives than any of the rest of us. We need you. We need college students who graduate and don't leave Buchanan. I know, some of you can't wait to get out. You just wanna get out of this place. You're looking for the best job, the best money. I need you to stay here, fall in love with the community that you've invested in because we need you. We need you. We need middle schoolers and high schoolers who walk into their schools every single day praying for God to use them to bring others to him so that the hopelessness that I feel when I walk in the schools is pushed back. We need that. We need you to become rich in imagination because what we have as a culture right now is at best merely killing our souls. We see it. There's an epidemic and the self-help isn't working. We need Jesus' help. I've got to end because there's a second service coming. <laughs> Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized, and please for the love of God under, underline these things, when they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. For the life of all that's in me, I pray that you underline, you write those things on your mirror, unschooled, ordinary, and I've been with Jesus. This is the final part of the story I'm telling, and it's the most important because it doesn't say they were known to have been with the first, you fill in the denomination, Church of Jesus. It doesn't say they were part of the evangelical covenant denomination. It doesn't put these men's relationship with their church first. It puts their relationship with Jesus at the center, and that's what makes the difference. See, to survive the church, your relationship with Jesus must be stronger than your relationship with the church. I feel like week in and week out, I'm trying to tell you a story of imagination that puts Jesus at the center of your existence in this faith community, but I can't do it for you. 
Because if you're not spending time with Jesus, these men had been with Jesus. If you're not spending time with Jesus, you're missing what he has as a potential for you in life. We learn here from those who are attacking Peter and John that they're now amazed at them because when you're around Jesus more than your church, when you put Jesus at the center and not the church, here's what happens. The ordinary becomes extraordinary. That's what happens when you walk with Jesus. When you encounter Jesus, you go, I got nothing to offer. I'm just a dumb hick. I hear that all the time. I can't do anything. Good, you're ordinary. Go become extraordinary by spending times with Jesus. You may feel like, man, prophetic imagination. What the heck is he talking about? I don't know what that means. You may think it sounds too difficult to share your faith. You may think it sounds scary to suffer for Jesus, but that's because you're ordinary. And that's because you perceive yourself as ordinary. But when you start to spend time with Jesus, you go, you know what? I'm extraordinary. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm extraordinary. Some of you are like, I don't do this. Listen, look at your neighbor, be bold, be courageous, have some soul and some sass, and say, I'm extraordinary. Yes, amen, because we have spent time with Jesus. You might just be moments away from extraordinary. Peter and John took a walk toward the temple And God showed up and did something extraordinary. See, if the relationship had been out of order, listen, don't miss this. This is where I'm closing. The band can come. If the relationship had been out of order, if they had the church at the center instead of Jesus, they might have missed it. If they had walked past this man begging, they'd been like, you know what? We got to get to church. We got to give our offering. We'll be back in a little bit. We'll maybe bring you some McDonald's because you're hungry. And we don't know what you're going to do with your money. Amen. Amen. We gotta go to worship, we gotta potluck, we gotta cover dish dinner. We'll bring you some leftovers if there are any. But they didn't. See, their relationship was perfect, perfectly defined. Jesus first, everything else second. So if you want to, and I made this up today, if you wanna unwonkify your church, ready? If you wanna unwonkify your church, put Jesus first, be about proclaiming the life of Jesus, about suffering for Jesus about inviting non-Christians to Jesus, about a prophetically countercultural imagination and about watching the ordinary become extraordinary, even if it's you. As we close, I wanna ask you this question. Are you belonging to the church or are you fitting in? Here's what I mean by that. See, belonging is about discerning ourselves in the context of community. I bring all that I am to this community and the community actually helps me discern who I am. And, I, and the community becomes better because I'm a part of it. Fitting in says, I have to be like the rest of the community. See, we don't want you to fit in. None of us fit in, amen? You guys are weird. Like, we're all weird. We're all jacked up. We've all got chaotic, messy lives. We're all trying to figure this out. None of us fit in. We don't want you to fit in. We don't want everybody to look alike. But we want to belong. We want to belong to each other. And today, I'm inviting you to belong to Jesus. As we stand, let's stand together. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for several groups of people. And as I pray, here's what I'm going to ask. If that's you, if I'm naming you, if I'm identifying you, I'd love for you just to put your hand up. Just to say, that's me. Just for us to echo a prayer over you, to say, that's me. I'm not going to embarrass you. That's all I'm going to do. But let's pray together and let's receive this time.